Good morning, and welcome to Midpoint Wednesday. I'm Shelley Reback, your host for WMNF's Mid Florida Midweek Mid Morning Dose of News and Public Affairs with a Local Perspective. You are listening to WMNF 88.5 FM. We are Tampa Bay's only independent, commercial free FM radio brought to you by you because we are supported by generous listeners just like you. This Friday, January 27th, is International Holocaust Remembrance Day. It's always marked on January 27th because January 27th marks the anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz-Birkenau, the largest Nazi death camp. So every year on January 27th, uh, that day is Holocaust Memorial Day or Remembrance Day, and it takes place to commemorate the victims of the Nazi Holocaust and to make present today the command, never again in a world that's still scarred by genocide. We remember the six million Jews murdered during the Holocaust, but we also memorialize the millions of other people, the Romani and Sinta, Jehovah's Witnesses, homosexuals, political opponents, and others killed under Nazi persecution. And we acknowledge and remember the victims of subsequent genocides in Cambodia, Rwanda, Bosnia, and Darfur. The Holocaust threatened the very foundation of civilization, and we hope it taught us that genocide needs to be resisted every day. We cannot afford to be complacent or ignore the language of prejudice and bigotry whenever and wherever it arises. It demands challenge, and one way to do that is to bear witness for all of those who endured genocide and honor the survivors and all those whose lives were forever changed by it. But it becomes harder to bear witness when the witnesses themselves are no longer with us to speak for themselves. So many of the survivors of the Holocaust have now passed on. It is the next generation that will be responsible for Holocaust remembrance and teaching future generations about fighting genocide and prejudice now. Why and how we do that is what I hope to discuss with my guest today. In the studio with me is Michael Eagle. Michael is the chairman of the board of the Florida Holocaust Museum in St. Petersburg. He's a healthcare lawyer at the Johnson Pope Law Firm in his day job, and he's also the chair of the Florida Commissioner of Education's Task Force on Holocaust Education which sets the statewide standards on how the Holocaust must be taught in Florida public schools. So welcome to Midpoint, Michael Eagle. Thank you so much for having me. As you know, our show is live, and we welcome your questions and comments. So if you'd like to join our conversation on Holocaust remembrance or any related topic, give us a call at 813-239-9663. You can email us at dj at wmnf.org, or you can text me at 813-433-0885. So, Michael, you're the grandson of Holocaust survivors, and you've taken on the responsibility for speaking for them and sharing their experiences as witnesses to genocide. Uh, Tell us a bit about what your grandparents' experience was and how it affected your family's life. Sure, and um, in ways that it does every single day. Uh, And thank you again for the the wonderful intro and for having me here. 
Um, my grandparents, uh, I actually am the grandchild of three Holocaust survivors, three out of four. Uh, my father's parents were uh, farmers in rural Poland, e- southeastern Poland, which just is actually the area, one of the areas that's taking many of the Ukrainian refugees now. It's just kind of an, a wild full circle experience in my family. Uh, but they were they were farmers and um, they were placed, my grandfather was one of four children. He was the middle son and there was a, a sister. And uh, they were placed into the, to give you the incredibly truncated version just for time, uh, they were, my grandparents had a little infant and they were placed into the ghetto like many Jews in their towns. And um, at that moment, uh, they were walking on the edge of the ghetto with their little baby and uh, just give you a couple kind of points in the story. And uh, they were walking along the, the, the fence, the gate and uh, barbed wire, by the way, (laughs) that they were kept out of. And uh, a stranger uh, approached them and said, no baby, that cute, that beautiful should be in there. And my grandfather um, took a deep breath and, uh, and said, can you help us? Which of course was punishable by death to ask anyone to help you. Uh, and and this woman would have would have been and could have been killed for saying yes. And she said, "Meet me here tomorrow." And I always stop at points where people in my story and my family's story were upstanders. That's what we we call. There's four kinds of people in the world. I always explain. There's victims, there's bystanders, there's perpetrators, and there's upstanders. And I want to do my part to make everybody I talk to an upstander. And that's what I try to do every day. And and there's one. That's spot. interesting because in my own life. Um, I can't help but judge people as whether they would be the kind of person to hide me in the secret annex or call the authorities. <laughs> that's how right? I that's it, how I analyze the world too. Well, it's interesting because coming from the family that I come from, as I get through, as, I, as I walk through the story, you get, I wrestle with that every single day, but in a way that it actually inspires me and lights a fire in me. It doesn't create in me an obligation to do something. It's a privilege. Um, and so this, this woman took uh, my aunt, her last name was Konyosna, we do know that. Um, I always make sure to share as many names as possible, that's an honor, especially um, this week and, and Friday being Holocaust Remembrance Day, as you said. Um, and she took, and my aunt was a hidden child for, for years. Um, she was uh, raised in that portion of her life with fake papers, and she was told that her parents were off doing some war effort. And that was her aunt. And that's how, you know, from an infant until she was about four. So my grandparents were then um, uh, still in the ghetto. At this point, it was my grandparents um, and my great-grandfather and my, one of my bro- uh, grandfather's brothers. And um, my grandfather, because he was a farmer, was teaching a high-ranking Nazi official's wife how to ride a horse, since he was one of the few who knew how to ride a horse. Uh, my grandfather used to tell my brother and me that that the, the, the man, the Nazi, was like the devil, he would say in his like, thick Polish accent. But he said the wife was the opposite. And there's another, another it's a bizarre dichotomy to be married to somebody who's the devil and you're the angel. And he said that's what she was. She was another upstander. She told him that she had heard from her husband that when she was done learning to ride a horse, he was gonna kill my grandfather and he needed to leave. So my grandfather and his father and brother and wife uh, left into and hid in the forest in Poland. And they were shepherded around uh, to barns, almost, I think of it as equivalent to almost an underground railroad, you know, uh, shepherded to different barns, hidden in the forest, and uh, by non-Jews. So there's another set of upstanders who were doing the, just doing what they, what, what, doing the right thing, no matter the circumstance, because it was the right thing to do. And they could have turned their backs. Most people did. That's part of genocide is people act as bystanders. They see something they know is wrong but they don't do anything about it. 
They're just part of it. Um, and my grandparents used to tell us about the, these. The good Germans. That's what the scholarship calls them, the good Germans. Right, precisely. Yeah, people who were complacent and compliant, really. Exactly. I mean, these were, these were neighbors. You know, some of our survivors would tell stories of how they were children. They, they were in school. And the next, they came to school on Monday, and on Tuesday, their friends told them, I can't play with you anymore. My parents said, I can't play with a Jew. It just like this. And imagine as a child right. to go through that. Now, um, you know, many Holocaust survivors felt uh, they did not want to talk about their experiences with their, their families. Others felt like they had to talk about it all the time and in detail. And, you know, which, which was it in your family and why do you think? Uh, great question. It's a little bit of both. Uh, you know, my grandfather um, talked about it a lot, but in a way that, you know, I remember verbally, at least, it being very, it was important to him, especially when I get to the, the sort of the crux of it, um, these people, the gorillas that I'm about to tell you about. He would tell stories in a way that when I look at it now, and I'm in my 40s, I say, oh, now I know why. He, it was so important for him to tell my brother and me these stories because he wanted to make sure that we were upstanders and we, and I think he was so appreciative for what people did for him. And he used to tell us it was the worst in humanity, but I always want you to remember it was also the best. And That's I, an interesting way to look at it. I, I totally agree. And, and, and my grandmother was one of seven. She lost everybody except for one brother. They were murdered. I'm gonna be clear, you know, she, she didn't lose them, they were murdered. Right. And she very rarely talked about it. Maybe the last year or so of her life, she would talk a little bit more about it with me. But she always stood next to my grandfather when he would go speak at schools, which was, which was constant. Um, and so, but, but she didn't really talk about it a lot, and he did. And I think I've got both of them in me, mm. you know? I, uh, how, tell me, how is the Florida Holocaust Museum preparing for the eventuality that very soon we won't have any actual witnesses or survivors to educate visitors or inform curators or ex exhibitions from their own experiences of the Holocaust? How's the museum adapting to that? So great question in a bunch of ways. You're talking to part of it, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, it's really incumbent upon... You're, you're the chair of the board, chairman of the board of the Holocaust Museum. Correct. And, and I'm what you call, a what we call a 3G, third generation. Mm -hmm. So we have the 2Gs, the 3Gs, and we've got... We've got some 4Gs too, which is exciting because that's part of the victory, right? In mm -hmm. survival. Right. Um, but uh, so it's, it's sharing these stories and, and you know, people think um, just, just yesterday, literally, um, you know, we work with a lot of schools at the museum and at the task force, of course. And um, I'm, I was, I'm scheduled this evening to speak on the news with, I was supposed to speak with several survivor families at the museum. Uh, all but one of those survivors is uh, able to make it now. And this, because just yesterday, one went into the hospital. I mean, these people are in their late 80s, early 90s. Right. It's a reality. And we've been fearful of this, but also addressing it for years now. So we are compelling people like me to make sure that they are empowered to share the stories. And the museum does a lot. It has a speakers bureau um, that that speaks to schools and, and to corporations statewide whenever needed. We used to rely on, on the survivors. Those are the people that were there. But people tend to think, um, you know, I'm, I'm speak, I'm, so we were working to, uh, with a school uh, in town, the Tampa Bay. Um, we, we speak all over the state. 
but that was going to have a survivor and me. We're supposed to film first on Thursday and then visit on Friday together. She went into the hospital yesterday. But the inclination is to think, well, if I don't have a survivor here or with me or speaking, they were there, so there's nothing else anybody can talk about it. There's nothing of value. But what we've learned, thankfully, is that the experiences of people like me, the children and the grandchildren, we have a, a different perspective that's at the core is the same story. You know, my, my grandparents told us about the gorillas uh, growing up. The gorillas were a husband and wife farmers that barely knew my grandparents. They kind of knew them from their little town. And my grandparents used to always tell us that they hid them. It was the four of them with three other people. I'm not sure who they were, three other Jews. And um, they went to church uh, for New Year's on New Year's Eve. And they came back to church, the gorilla from church, and they, they went into the barn where they were hiding these seven Jews. And they said, this is exactly how my grandfather used to tell us this story. And they said, uh, hey, we heard in church that people are saying that we're hiding Jews. We just want to let you know, you know, and, and, but don't worry, it'll, it'll pass. And my grandfather was skittish, not only for his family, but also for these, this husband and wife. They had three little children. He said, why don't we go somewhere else for the night? And they were brought somewhere else. The other three had no place to go. Well, the next morning, the gorillas were going to church on New Year's Day, and they were stopped by the police and brought back to their house. They ransacked the barn. They found the other three Jews. They made them dig their own graves, and they shot them on the spot. And my grandfather had intended my, you know, to bring the family back there, so he left a bag hidden, and they found the bag. And they said, where is Eagle to these two people? This, again, I call them normal only on paper, when you think about it, just average farmers. They were arrested, their kids were left in the, in the house. They were tortured for six weeks. Where are, the, where are the eagles? They did not give them up and they were executed for it. So I grew up learning that story. There's so much in that that compels me and, I, and I've seen it compel other people of all ages. When you know there are people on earth who do things like that, how can you not bring some of that into you? So that's part of how we, we do it, is we gonna continue these stories going forward even though it's got a little bit of a different perspective. The core of my story is other people. It's not even my family. The other thing is technology. You know, um, technology can be bad. You know, social media can be accessible. <laughs> and I know everybody thinks about it that way too, but it's tech, we also have the same weapon as good people, as upstanders. The museum uh, works very closely with the Shoah Foundation, which is Steven Spielberg's right. foundation. Um, on, it's been working on a project called Dimensions and Testimony. We are one of only a small handful in the world that has it. And it's just, it'll blow your mind if you see, you should come, everybody should come to the museum to see it. It allows you, and this is the kind of answered the million dollar question is how do we, how are we going to speak directly to survivors when they're not here? And part of the answer, again, is you do it through people like me and through people like you, but also it's dimensions and testimony. Using artificial intelligence and pre-recorded interviews, you can actually speak with a survivor. You can ask the survivor basically any question. They're extensively researched, and then they're asked thousands of questions over the span of a week. And so now you can come to the museum. And they can respond to you in AI form? Yeah, it just is Artificial so... Artificial intelligence, That's Yeah, and wild. it just does something. I knew what I was going to see when I went to see it, uh -huh. and I was still blown away. I thought, yes, yeah. this is it. That's you wild. Know? It's wonderful. Well, you know... Um, I've been doing this show for about five years, four or five years now, and every January, uh, the week of Holocaust Remembrance Day, I do a show about the Holocaust um, because I think it's important to keep it in the forefront 
um, as a commandment to enforce never again. Um, so I, I just want to remind our listeners that um, I did an in-depth interview with a survivor named Renee Hammond, who I know was um, also active in the museum's mm-hmm. um, survivor education program and uh, interviewed her at length about her own experience as a survivor. And we ran that uh, show. I interviewed her in 2019. We ran the show again in uh, on January 21st of 2021. And if anyone's interested in hearing that, um, you can go to the WMNF archives at wmnf.org slash midpoint. Scroll down to January 20. First of 2021, and you can hear that interview with Renee Hammond about her own experiences as a survivor. She was a teenager in Hungary when she was enslaved by the Nazis um, to labor in a Krupp's munitions factory in Germany. That was her particular experience. Um, all right, I want to I want to turn to the issue of Holocaust education in the schools with you, Michael. Um, The Florida legislature has mandated that students in Florida receive education about the Holocaust, and you serve as the chair of the task force that counsels the Department of Education on how that education should be presented in the schools. So what type of recommendations um, are you making uh, to the Florida Department of Education about Holocaust education? Sure, and the latest work we've been doing is actually a good opportunity to talk about what a trailblazer Florida has been historically when it comes to Holocaust education in, in public schools in Florida. Um, just by way of a little bit of background, uh, in the early 90s, I believe it was 1993, uh, Florida was one of the first states uh, to mandate by statute Holocaust education, as you mentioned, but it goes all the way back to the early 90s. Um, and and our, the founder of the museum, Walter Lobenberg, and the museum were, were catalysts in that. And then just, uh, boy, COVID really messes with your mental calendar, but <laughs> yeah. two or three years ago, I think it was, it was two years ago now, uh, Florida became the first state to, so what happens is, and, and thankfully there's a growing number of states that mandate Holocaust education by statute, but then it becomes, well, how do I teach this? I mean, obviously it's very complex, no matter what the age of the student, it's got to be age appropriate. And, you know, recognize the fact that you can have rural or urban areas where teachers have no idea what it even was. And that's okay. It happens. And so Florida became the first state to establish formal standards for how the Holocaust gets taught. So to give teachers those tools, which is really the next step. And so it's exciting to be the first state that's done that. And I'd say that's mainly what we've been working over the last couple of years. Um, I took over about two years ago. We're still working through that. They've been established, but we're still working through that as well as working to ensure that schools are meeting the mandate. Uh, you're listening to WMNF Midpoint um, with my guest, Michael Eagle, who's chairman of the Florida Holocaust Museum and an appointed member of the Florida Department of Education Task Force on Holocaust Education. If you have questions or comments about Florida Holocaust Education, please give us a call at 813-239-9663. You can email us at dj at wmnf.org or you can text us at 813-433-0885. Um, Michael, let me ask you, 
do you see, and I don't mean to put you on the spot, but... Uh, not a good this preface, is, but... This <laughs> is, yeah, that's a, not a good intro, but it's top of mind for me. Um, do you see any irony in the requirement that students receive Holocaust education, but the teaching of the history of racial and gender prejudice in the United States has virtually been banned in Florida schools? Uh, just this week, the governor and the Department of Education rejected an AP class on African-American history. This is the first time since AP classes began that a class has been rejected by any state. And, of course, critical race theory, which is simply the idea that there were and perhaps still are structural and institutional factors in American society that prejudice and inhibit people of color, that's banned, although it wasn't taught in the first place. Um, so I'm just wondering, you know, we have this new stop woke law, uh, which specifically targets and it places vague restrictions on educators' ability to teach and discuss concepts around the legacy of slavery in America and around white privilege and anti-racism. Part of the legacy uh, of American racism and slavery was Nazi persecution of the Jews in the Holocaust. The Nazis actually claimed that they learned how to create a society marked by prejudice against the Jews, and they learned how to dehumanize Jews by studying how Americans treated blacks, first as slaves and then in the Jim Crow era. So I've got to ask, do you see any irony or disconnect in what is happening in Florida social studies education today? We must teach the Holocaust, but we can't teach the legacy of American slavery insofar as it relates to the Holocaust. So would Florida teachers, for example, teaching the Holocaust today even be allowed to teach the actual fact that Hitler emulated the American Jim Crow laws in formulating the Nuremberg laws, which laid the legal groundwork for the persecution and ultimately uh, the killing of Jewish people by the Third Reich. And would, even would the Holocaust Museum that you serve on the board, if it gets any state funding, would the museum be able to teach that historical fact in light of these extraordinary restrictions that Governor DeSantis and the Florida legislature have promulgated in the Stop Woke laws. Sure. So, you know, and just to be clear, obviously, I'm, and I'm not suggesting you're saying this, I, I'm not a representative of, of the governor's office or, or anything of that nature. And my, my lane is is Holocaust uh, education and and uh, fighting, you know, anti-Semitism. That's not to say that I don't think. Uh, all these issues in fighting bigot bigotry is not of exceptional importance in all of its forms. In fact, that is an outflow of Holocaust education, right? You know, I mean, I always say people don't walk out of the museum and say, well, I just learned that I really need to be nice to Jewish people, but thank God I can still be mad, you know, be, be, be mean to gay people and black people. That's, that's thankfully not how it works. Holocaust education has, is more ubiquitous than that. So I just want to be clear, you know, the well, details of some of those are outside my lane. To relate, do you think it's important to relate Holocaust education or really the history sure. of the Third Reich's relationship to the Jews and prejudice against homosexuals and Jehovah's Witnesses and Romani and Sinta people and all the people who suffered in the Holo Nazi Holocaust. Do you think it's important as part of Holocaust education to relate that to current trends 
in prejudice, in discrimination and bigotry? And if so, how do you explain to people that the Nuremberg Laws and Nazi Germany were modeled on the American Jim Crow era when we are are to- told now that schools should not be teaching the legacy of slavery. Like, sure. it's done. Sla- it's done. There's nothing more to learn here. Right. Move on. That's, the, that's kind of what we're getting from our, our Florida state government now. Sure. And, and I think um, also, uh, again, outside my lane, at the same time, I will say, you know, there is uh, also an African-American education task force that is designed very, very similarly to, I'm not on it, obviously, and, and don't represent it, but... It, there is also, I'm proud to say, you know, a task force um, to tackle these, these to assist and support the Department of Education in this regard. Um, and also, I should just to be clear, uh, within actually the same statute, uh, the mandate is also a mandate on um, um, African-American related studies. Again, not to beat a dead horse with this, outside my lane, but those things exist too. Now, well, I want to I want to keep it um, in your lane, yeah, yeah. which is why I'm I'm asking pretty specific examples. Like, would Florida teachers who are mandated to teach the Holocaust today be allowed? Do you think, under the new sure. Stop Woke law, to teach that Hitler emulated the American Jim Crow laws in formulating the Nuremberg yeah. laws? And, and- so I think that I mean, is that something that uh, the, the, the restrictions from Stop Woke are so vague that teachers are having trouble interpreting that. But you are on the task force that is developing standards. So mm-hmm. now that we have this new Stop Woke law, I would imagine that your task force is going to have to address this type of question. You know, how much how much should be Florida teachers be? Uh, allowed to inform their students about the relationship between the Holocaust, the Nazi Holocaust, and the American uh, history of slavery and Jim Crow. Sure. And and, and we've we've analyzed uh, the statute as it relates to Holocaust education and the way that it's taught uh, by the museum and by uh, members of the task force. And uh, at this point, have determined that it would not create an issue as it relates to the way Holocaust education is taught. Well, um, you know, was- I have a question from one of our listeners sure. here who emailed in. Amy from St. Pete wants to know, is there a definition of, of woke that your task force in the stop woke laws, uh, you know, is there a definition that that you rely on in interpreting these new laws, these stop woke laws that would guide you in a- answering the question or in formulating standards, for example, about the teaching of the relationship between the Florida Nuremberg, uh, I, I mean, I'm sorry, between the sure. Nazi Nuremberg laws and the, let's say, Florida Jim Crow laws. Sure. And again, we've, we've reviewed the statute and it, and, and and, and at, you know, at this stage of the way Holocaust education is taught, I uh, do not believe it runs runs afoul. I also want to be really careful here uh, because while there are some overlapping themes as it relates to um, what happened in the Holocaust, and I find the word hate to be a little mm-hmm. bit lazy, to be honest. I use bigotry and other words that are a little, a little deeper than, than hate. Um, but there are some overlapping themes here. When you look at other genocides, you mentioned it's so important to mention because it's part of the mission of the museum is to is to pay attention to other genocides also. It mm-hmm. is important. I think there's some unique things about the Holocaust in that, you know, it was a westernized democratic election, legitimate election where Hitler was, you know, so I think 
um, when you look at there are scholars and like you said I have a day job so I would not consider myself a, you know a curriculum expert mm-hmm. Holocaust education expert but there, there are thankfully so many out there but a lot of them say what what is it that about the Holocaust that is so unique and ingrained and in, you know why do people almost relate to that as when you think of genocide what's the first one you think of and a lot of it is because it was in a westernized country it was in a contemporary modern country where this happened those of us in other countries like ours we can it's the closest we can relate to it's not the only one but it's it's the largest one and so you know that's important there's some overlap there but we are very sensitive and careful about equivalencies and i'm not suggesting you're creating one that's not my point but there are certain aspects that are covered where we you know like from a historical perspective it is absolutely the case that you know hitler looked at jim crow for example i mean that that's any, a any historian fact. will tell you that right. precisely. Um, at the same time, we're always very, very careful not to create equivalencies. We often say, you know, that can and is that issue, whatever, can and is horrible by itself. Let it be horrible by itself. It doesn't need to be compared to the Nazis. It wasn't. People, you know, it, we see, we hear it in politics all the time. So-and-so is a Nazi. And, you know, people like me sometimes say, you know, are people getting dragged out of their homes? Are they getting ratted out by their neighbors and thrown in camps? And I, I don't want to over-dramatize this. You know, that is an unintentional form of anti-Semitism that we all need to be better educated about. And I, my, my emphasis on this is simply ca- great care is taken to teach these issues and teach these themes from as historical facts, but not do so in a way that creates um, either intentional or really unintentional equivalencies also. This is well, a singular you know, that, that That's um, very interesting that, and provides me with a good segue into another area that I wanted to get into with you, um, and that is the issue of anti-Semitism and, and the place of the museum um, in addressing it and how it can be addressed. Mm-hmm. Uh, this has been a particularly bad year for anti-Semitism in Florida. Uh, we've had that media outlet that shall not be named littering local <laughs> law, lawns with baggies um, of anti-Semitic leaflets and rice or stones. Uh, we've had actual self-identified Nazis marching around the downtown Tampa Convention Center and through the suburbs and hanging banners from local overpasses. Um, what do you make of this significant rise in the free expression of Nazi or white supremacist ideology in Florida and throughout the United States, really? And how do you see the museum's role in in combating that? Um, is that something that the museum uh, takes on, or is the museum's role really just more narrowly focused on dealing with the historic Nazi Holocaust? Thank you for asking that question, actually. So... How do we handle? We're the leaders in the, in the battle against it because you know part of our mission. If you look at our mission statement, is to honor the victims and survivors of the Holocaust. Well, I don't think there's a more important way to do that than to continue to fight against the precise bigotry and the experience that they had in in the modern version. If people ask me, um, do you think that we are headed towards? another Holocaust in America, for example. And I say, you know, thankfully, and I think most of the experts would say the same thing, the ingredients, the, the full-blown ingredients, you know, thankfully, no. You know, not yet, let's say. Um, 
But that doesn't mean this isn't a horrible, you know, it doesn't have to be that catastrophic. We don't need to see another six million, or as you said, so many others, millions of others murdered just for who they are. It doesn't have to get to that in order for this to be a major issue for society. And I would say three things are, there's three important things, education, education, education. And that's how we've got about it. So why do I think it's it's happening? I think it's always been there. Anti-Semitism has been, it's the oldest form. Again, talk to anyone in this space. It's literally, it's known as the oldest form of hatred. It's been around since before Jesus. We were blamed for that, as you know. Um, uh, There's a, I forget which comedian says that, you know, if we really did control the media, wouldn't we make ourselves look better? You know, but um, the, I think the lack of, the, it's kind of chicken and egg. The distance in time since the Holocaust has Holocaust happened makes it so there can be more distortion, more denial. Uh, anti neo Nazis are and Nazis are interesting people. You meet one, he'll tell you that the Holocaust didn't go far enough. You meet another one, he tells you that it never happened. So you could, uh, the inanity of the whole thing, you know, needs to be considered. But the idea, the the farther we get from when it happened, and we lose the survivors, as you said. And it becomes this paragraph in a history book, if not for places like the museum and not for institutions like the task force. And so we're going to battle it through education. And I don't just mean in schools. This is, we have a corporate program because this exists everywhere. Mm. And it often can, the forgotten racism in many respects, people don't intuitively think that this is an area that they're supposed to care about. In fact, a lot would say, well, Jews don't need our help. They're very successful. That's anti-Semitic. Well, that's another uh, that's another issue that uh, relates to our current uh, legislative priorities. Um, in the past, it often seemed as if DEI programs, diversity, equity, and inclusion programs, didn't really address anti-Semitism. I think that's what you mean when you agree. talk about uh, you know the absence of that from corporate programs. Um, and and often DEI programs didn't address anti-Semitism or didn't include religious minorities, uh, Jews specifically, in the programs because of all the things that you mentioned. Um, we may not have to worry about that issue anymore because, again, with the governor's Stop Woke agenda, um, the state of Florida seems determined to get rid of DEI programs altogether. Um, and do you think that's a good or a bad thing for teaching tolerance, empathy, and inclusion, which are the values that the museum in its education uh, is trying to promote? Sure. And I think Holocaust education, I would, since I used the word upstander here and kind of explained what an upstander is, um, I'll use it again. It, you know, the, the training uh, that the Holocaust Museum does and the education does in general is really upstander training. It's utilizing these stories and the over 20,000 artifacts that the museum has, which everybody in Tampa Bay should be extremely proud of because it dwarfs the amount of many larger markets um, that are also doing wonderful work in, in Holocaust education and the fight against anti-Semitism. Um, but using the artifacts and the stories, um, it's really the focus is on the upstander. It's telling stories like mine and say, here are the tools using these, these real life stories um, to uh, motivate positive action, to be very general about it. And so I think the education in any of its forms is extremely important. I think healthy, I want to be really good, healthy debate about styles of education is very, very important. That's what the task force does. We have healthy debate about um, 
how certain things should be taught, which I think is very, very important. What for some reason, again, is the uh, racism that's lowest on the totem pole, in my view, anti-Semitism that comes out is um, for some reason, uh, this sometimes spins into, well, can, does that mean we're supposed to teach about um, uh, uh, for the position that the Holocaust never happened? Well, that's, that's not really a debate. That's, that's not about a style of teaching a certain issue. This is a question of whether, uh, of historical fact. And I'm, I'm thankful that you do not hear in the debate, for example, I'm extremely thankful that there's an argument over whether slavery ever took place. Um, and you can imagine what it's like for somebody whose family has been torn apart by this to hear uh, even educators. And I think sometimes, at least maybe in good faith, asking, does this mean I have to teach the position that the, that some have that the Holocaust never happened? Well, no, because that's not education. No, but, um, you know, the Nazis called the Jews a race, not a religious group. And there's still some debate about that. Um, but I note that the Stop Woke Law also states that an educational curriculum cannot include concepts such as that anyone is, and I'm quoting from the law now, privileged or oppressed based solely on their race, color, sex, or national origin, or that anyone is, quote, inherently racist, sexist, or oppressive, whether consciously or unconsciously, close quote, by virtue of their race, color, sex, or national origin. So in thinking about how do we teach Holocaust education and you know, not saying that the Holocaust didn't exist. I see that, but what I what I want to explore is: Do you ever worry that there's some white Aryan German kids' parents who are going to complain that teaching the Holocaust and the German Nazi genocide against the Jewish race makes that kid feel bad, feel guilty, and so we can't have Holocaust education anymore either. Sure. Um, and yikes, I, I hope I haven't given anybody in the listening world <laughs> right, the, the right, idea right. to do There's that. Please don't, manual please, that don't do that. <laughs> right. please don't do that. Please don't do that. But isn't this type of censorship about teaching a slippery slope? I mean, I always believe that if something bad happens to any minority, it is eventually, inevitably, going to be bad for the Jews, too. So that I feel like Jews have a special responsibility, and I count myself among them, to protect and defend every minority. But, you know, I do worry that with these kinds of laws, like like the Stop Woke Law, um, you know, we're going to have people say, hey, you know, I, I'm, I'm of German descent, and I, I shouldn't be made to feel that my ancestors, my family, uh, you know, was, you know, horrible uh, because of the persecution that they did uh, for the Jews. I mean, I, I don't know. It could happen. Uh, I, certainly, it could happen. I mean, uh, and I, but I, in, in my experience, which is, you know, reasonably significant with Holocaust education, again, you know, talk to curriculum experts about this as well, but, but as somebody who's around it a lot, um, Holocaust, so it's that distinction between the way, the way someone receives something versus the way it's conveyed, you know. Uh, Holocaust education, when you look at the standards, when you look at the museum and other institutions like it and the way they teach, it doesn't do that. Now, having a discussion with an Aryan or a neo-Nazi acting, speaking in good faith about the offense that they take, that um, neo-Nazis are bad, so to speak. <laughs> First of all, it's, 
It, it does sound funny to civilized people it like you does, and me, but, it, but, but it's important. Know, it, it was it, never questioned before that Nazis were bad, but it seems like in today's culture there are sectors of the population who don't accept that Nazis are bad anymore. And I, and I think, you know, I look at it as that's what the education is for. And, and, it, it, and I... I Again, since it's outside of my lane, I, I'm just not qualified to answer about the details of these other forms of teaching on these other issues that are so significant. I think you make such an important point. I'm not going to you know, be as public as I am about what I come from and, and the people, the communities I represent. And it's not just the Jewish community. I, I agree with you. We, we, we have an obligation to each other as people. Um, to do the right thing. Right, and but, e- because uh, even in your discussion about your own family's history, for example, I noticed that you referred to um, you know, some of the righteous Gentiles who helped your family escape, for example, as an underground railroad for the Jews. And that struck me, the underground railroad mm-hmm. um, s- symbolism. Uh, you know, n- there's a confluence um, a natural confluence, I think, in talking about race uh, and talking about the history of race in America and talking about Holocaust education. It, you know, Absolutely. things like that come up in and the discussion. So, as you said, my. Uh, my day job is a lawyer, so I'm going to give you a lawyer's answer. Yes and no, you know, because <laughs> absolutely, again, there are those overlaps. Um, we can laugh at that as both of us as lawyers, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, so people love us. But um, it's it's it really is kind of yes and no because yes, there are some of those overlapping themes, and I actually use that on purpose because I think that that is something that people that don't know a lot about the Holocaust, when I say they were shepherded from place to place, people tend to learn more. I know there's lots of controversy about this that again it goes outside my lane but many people uh, at least you know growing up in the United States learn about the fact that slavery existed and they would probably do so before they know they learn that the Holocaust existed even if they even if they even do um, so I use that on purpose because I think it is one that at least it is a faster way for people to understand um, what I'm what I'm referring to and again there are some themes here that 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 overlap but the the way that the again, I can only speak to Holocaust education. The way that it's taught, in our, in our view and analysis so far, does not run afoul. I can't speak to how obviously the governor or or any other legislator feels about the way other styles are taught or or any or other issues and themes are discussed in the classroom. I'm just not qualified to answer. I'm not trying to escape it. I literally just don't know, and I'm not afraid to say that. But as it relates to Holocaust education. Um, you know, look, if, if, a, if a neo-Nazi's child is offended um, by uh, hearing, and again, I want to be really clear about this, the way in which the Holocaust is taught, it doesn't involve any of that. So if the, you can look at the curriculum, but if the recipient feels offended, I would like to help that child, as we're talking about schools in this case, or, or the individual within that company, because we again we work with a lot of adults too. Everybody's part of this. I, that to me is an opportunity. That is an open door to conversation. To saying, hey, that's not the intent here. Let's talk a little bit more. Um, that's that's how this works in in my mind. Well, and that's, that's how, how I see it, it worked work. before the stop woke law. That's certainly how it worked before the stop woke law. After the stop woke law, which is currently under a, an injunction. Um, yeah. So it's not 
being enforced in all of its glory. But um, but how it will be, should that injunction be lifted in the future, you know, we don't really know. But right. certainly what you're describing is what we would have expected any responsible educator to do in, in, in connection with any student who expressed discomfort at something they were learning, I, I would imagine. Yeah. You know? I, I, now, it, how that's going to go forward... I don't, I don't know. And I, I, I don't mean to put you on the no, spot no, that's okay. about the, the Stop Woke law, but it just struck me in, in thinking about our discussion today that the museum has such an important role to play uh, in educating people about prejudice, bigotry, and on the flip side, tolerance and empathy. And, um, and, and that it just seemed to me that this was really putting a chink in the armor of what the museum's education program is really all about. And I just wondered, you know, whether you, whether you saw it that way, whether you had analyzed it in terms of the law, um, and whether you were preparing for any eventuality in terms of how the law may be interpreted if the injunction is lifted. We, and we are doing that. And, again, and, and so speaking from a Holocaust education standpoint, a curriculum standpoint as it relates to the museum and the task force, that yes, that has been you know analyzed. And I think so much of the key, um, I know I keep saying it, but I'll say it again, um, you know, can't speak to the other ways that these that other very important issues are taught, but as it relates to Holocaust education, I believe it does not run afoul of the statute. But as a lawyer, we were preparers, so you know we're obviously you know if we need to pivot because that's what the law says, then you know we're going to have to because the key is making sure that people that we continue to do our job when business is good for us, which it is. That's not a good thing, right? And so that's why. Um, you know, we the, the museum continues to be an innovator in the way that it teaches. We have uh, more that's going to be coming out because the battle has changed. So it's not just our sort of interpersonal mandate to fight anti-Semitism. It's, again, that is part of honoring the victims and the survivors of the Holocaust. And this week, for some of us, it's every day. Mm-hmm. But, but in this week in particular, when people often ask me, well, what is, why is this important? Why is it important to remember us? I'm not Jewish. You mm-hmm. know, I, we hear that a lot, and that's okay. I mean, it's a fair question. It's to say because this goes beyond Jews. This mm-hmm. is about society and things that exist in society overall. Jews historically are often the first ones. There's always the phrase of the canary in the coal mine, right? And his, history will show you that. And it's it, we use the yeah, lens. Yeah, that's what I said earlier. You know, if it's bad for somebody, inevitably it's going to be bad for the Jews. You it's know? usually bad it's, for us first, and then. Yes, <laughs> but but true. I mean, at some point, um, you know, uh, and I've heard before people say, you know, you're always going in the wrong direction when you compare somebody to Hitler. You know, right. <laughs> it always comes back to to us. Well, right? you know, uh, let me turn to that too, because you know, obviously the the mission of the museum encompasses. Um, fighting anti-Semitism generally, I, I would expect. And the Anti-Defamation League, which monitors anti-Semitism recently, in fact, just last week, released a new report that showed that the number of Americans harboring extensive anti-Semitic prejudice has doubled since 2019. Since 2019, just since the Holocaust. I, I'm sorry, since the COVID time. Um, And they found more anti-Semitism in America than ever in the three decades since the ADL began measuring anti-Semitism. But 
they also found that many Americans believe in Israel-oriented anti-Semitic positions. From 40% who at least slightly believe that Israel treats Palestinians like Nazis treated Jews, to 18% who are uncomfortable even spending time with a person who supports Israel. So according to the ADL, there's a a nearly 40% correlation between belief in anti-Jewish tropes an anti-Israel belief, meaning that a substantial number of people in the United States who believe anti-Jewish tropes also have negative attitudes toward Israel. Now, you know, I read that in preparation for today, and I'm not sure that I find this credible. Um, I know plenty of American Jews who are critical of Israel, but who you would not be able to label as anti-Semitic under any rational circumstances. And plenty of American evangelicals and Christian dominionists who are huge supporters of Israel, but who are also rabidly anti-Semitic. So I'm not sure that I find that that statistic to be very credible. Um, But I'd like to know what are your thoughts on this ADL report? And more to the point, if it is accurate, how does Holocaust education address this modern confluence of anti-Semitism and anti-Israel beliefs. So complicated. I completely agree with you. Um, I think, you know, one of the reactions I had to that survey um, is it's what happened, you know, the museum uh, two and a half years ago was the victim of um, some pretty disgusting anti-Semitic graffiti, as as you probably know. that was like hitting my home in many ways, you know? I mean, this is something I'm that passionate about, and I spent a lot of time at the museum. And I know for the staff, uh, the dedicated staff at the museum and the board, it was the same thing. It was like, it really felt like somebody had really desecrated your own home. Particularly a, an institution that is there for the memory of the people that were victims of this and survivors of this to then see swastikas, you know, graffiti. It was a, yeah. it was a horrible moment. And a lot of, it, it, but it, and it, the same thing happened to me at a, at a slightly smaller level when I saw that survey. And it happens to me all the time when I see these, this just, just this data, um, whether I see it with my eyes or I read about it, it's my first inclination is to get a little sad, a little frustrated, a little scared. You know, I, that, that's a, there's a half second of that. And then I slap myself into shape and say, this is an opportunity again. We've got to respond to this. We've got to make noise. That's, 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 that's what the upstanders do. That's what the education's for. That's why this education's important. Okay. And so, um, I think that one of the spots that hit me there, and I don't think that you mentioned it, just there were a bunch of stats in there, was that I think it was, don't quote me on this, but I think it was 20% harbor some form of anti-Semitic view. Um, and, and I'm going to talk about all these pieces. Just That one stuck out at me because I read that as, in the way it was explained, that's like the innocent anti-Semitism. One in five people who like you have lunch with, who's real nice, just thinks X, Y, or Z about Jews. Great, great person. Just mm-hmm. thinks it. You know, mm-hmm. oh yeah, no, I just, Jews are good with money. Right. You know, that kind of thing. They just have that. And, and that's not okay. So we have to help each other when it comes to that type of an issue. I think the, um, and if we had four days, maybe we could talk about Israel. <laughs> but I think, yeah, and I don't want to get off yeah, yeah, topic. Yeah, no, of course. But, but, and I, but, but you earlier mentioned something about false equivalencies. And I, I, I think yeah. that what the ADL report is doing is creating, you know, I think a false equivalency between criticism of Israel and me and, and being the equivalent of anti-Semitism. And I just wondered if that was something that the museum had confronted in your education program. No, the museum has not, um, 
you know, it's not a Jewish organization. It is not an Israel organization. That's that, important to and know. And it's really, really important to know, actually, yeah. because I, I, that's why I want to keep emphasizing that, that, you know, whether it's referred to as a problem only for Jews or that Holocaust education isn't important, it's only important for Jews. I mean, that's just not true. Yeah, in fact, I have, a, I have an email here from Charles who says, um, how, how would the museum explain or teach or how would we learn, how would we learn in schools given these new restrictions about making kids feel bad about their history, about things like the smallpox blankets given to Native Americans, the Trail of Tears, the Civil War, the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, the Asian sure. Exclusion Act of 1924, the, the Nazi Holocaust, Japanese internment camps in 1942. I mean, these are all topics that I would hope that are, you know, at least tangentially part of the museum's education yeah. program. Some of those, again, while exceptionally important, are outside the mission of the museum. There are great organizations um, on all, you know, we can't be everything to everyone. And, mm -hmm. and I don't mean to minimize anybody right. else's issue. These are all exceptionally important. You can imagine, again, how it feels to someone like me, who's the chair of the museum who went through this. Um, it's exceptionally important. Um, at the same time, let me just give a quick anecdote. Um, Very quick. Sure, Very we'll quick, because no, we're running it, out of time. Perfect, I'll answer that question. So Tampa Prep, local school, had um, uh, a swastikas um, in, in their locker room. I came in, spoke to the entire student, and fa student body and faculty. And this is why this is important, how this doesn't, this is an anecdote that doesn't run afoul. They built a bunch of multicultural clubs, the students in response to that, in response to Holocaust education, not just Jews, everyone stepped up and responded by fighting against what was going on in their school and have built a number of clubs that are interrelational to respond to the incident. That's why this is important. Well, I think that that's wonderful and you should be very proud of that and participating in that. Um, I thank my guest today, Michael Eagle, who's the chairman of the Florida Holocaust Museum, who's also been serving on the Florida Department of Education Task Force on Holocaust Education for joining me today to talk about Holocaust Memorial Day, Holocaust Education, Florida Nazis, and so much more. <laughs> I really appreciate you, um, your patience with uh, some of my questions. Oh, if you joined us late in the show, feel free to go back and listen on demand to any of our shows from the Midpoint Archives at WMNF.com org slash midpoint uh, or on the WMNF app or you can find our podcast WMNF midpoint wherever you get your podcasts I want to also thank our WMNF volunteers Jessica Green my soundboard op and Barbara Fling who answers the phones for us although we didn't have uh, a chance to take any phone calls and as always thank you the WMNF listeners for your interest and support of WMNF and of Midpoint in particular. If you enjoyed the show, please consider dropping us a tip in the tip jar and please direct your donation to MPW Midpoint Wednesday. Now please stay tuned for Talking Animals with Duncan Strauss. We are WMNF Tampa. Oh, the goddamn